0: Where is your sting? Oh, fear, where is your power? The mighty king of kings has disarmed you. <coughs> huh? It's a leopard. Stay back! Cover your mouth! Don't breathe his air Don't come any closer! It's okay, John. Rabbi, no. Rabbi, no. Rabbi, Rabbi, you, you cannot, no. This disease, you Please. Please. Please don't turn away from me. I won't. Lord you are willing, you can make me clean. Only if you want to, I submit to you. My sister, she was a servant at the wedding. She told me what you can do. I know you can heal me if you are willing. Don't seek your own honor. Please just do me this one thing. But, but what do I tell people? Go. Show yourself to the priest. Let them inspect you and see that you are cleansed. Make the proper offering in the temple as Moses commanded. And go on your way. Where's an extra tunic? Just one of you, just one of you. That's enough. <laughs> Green is definitely your color. <laughs> Not too shabby. <laughs> It's a beautiful scene when I saw that the first time. I think I was like bawling just at the, you know, at the scene itself of somebody in such great need coming to Jesus um, and his, his faith to believe what Jesus could do. And that's the portion of scripture that we get to cover today. Um, there was an umpire named Bay Pinelli, and he was behind the plate at a Yankees game When Babe Ruth, kind of strange, they both had the first name Babe, Babe Ruth came up to bat, and at one of his at-bats, Babe Pinelli, the umpire, called Babe Ruth out on strikes. And Babe Ruth, after the crowd was booing hysterically, turned to the umpire and said, there are 40,000 people here that know that that last pitch was a ball. Now, everybody expected the umpire to erupt. Right? In anger. And so they were bracing themselves for Ruth's ejection, except the umpire turned to Babe Ruth calmly and said, That may be, that may be so, babe, but mine's the only opinion that counts. (laughs) Mine's the only opinion that counts. People may look like they have it all together. They may be impressive, um, popular within the church or within culture, but there's only one who knows the whole story. There's only one whose opinion matters only one whose opinion counts Hebrews four thirteen says no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account and last week we finished up the sermon on the mount with Jesus giving his final warning to his disciples saying one day every person is going to give an account of their life to the only one whose opinion counts so we need to be very careful where we build, where we build our house. We need to be very careful what we build on. And then I'm going to threw through in there. We need to be very careful what we build with. Jesus said, the ones who hears my words and does them, that's the sticking point. He who does them is going to be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. He digs deep down. He lays the foundation on the rock. And that rock is Jesus And the foundation is the word of God. God is the, Jesus is the word made flesh. And that house, that house is the sum of a person's life. What have you built? What what have you built as a life? And I'm not talking about the size of the house here. We're talking about the quality of the construction. How was it constructed? If you built your life on Jesus and obedience to his words on the scripture, then you're going to be able to weather not just any storm in this life, but the ultimate test when you be able to stand in front of Jesus on judgment day. So that house that's built on the rock is going to withstand anything can beat against it, any kind of punishment, but it's going to stand because it's founded on Jesus. The house built on the sand is a, is a house that's built on works and human opinion. It may look impressive. It's beachfront property, Right. But because it has no foundation, when the storms come, it's going to be destroyed. It's going to be washed away. And it's not just going to be damaged, okay? It's going to be a total loss. There's not going to be anything left. We can be super religious on the outside, but if our foundation is on anything other than the grace of God and obedience to his word, it's not going to make it. It's not going to last. But that house that does make it, it had the right location. It had the right foundation but did it have the right materials? We can build on the right location and on the right foundation, but use some of the wrong materials. So we talked about that too. And we looked at the passage in 1 Corinthians 3 where Paul reminds us that the foundation, that rock, is Jesus Christ, and we need to take care how we build on it because are we building with wood and hay and straw? Or are we building with gold and silver and precious stones? It makes a huge difference what we build with. Paul says that all of our works, everything that we do here is going to be tested. It's going to be put to the fire. There'll be two judgments in the in heaven. There'll be a, a judgment of the unbelievers, those who have rejected Christ and the nations. There's going to be judgment there. Um, but then there's going to be a judgment for the believers. Not for our sins, those have already been forgiven, but our works, the things that we did while we were here will be judged and what will be left standing after it's been tested. We're all going to have a home inspection (laughs) when we get there. When God puts the fire to our earthly works, what will he find? If they weren't done for him, if they were done out of selfish ambition, if they were done to look good in front of other people, we're just going to end up with a pile of ash, okay? And the more good works you do, it doesn't matter how many you do, if it wasn't done for him, you're just going to have a bigger ash pile. just going to have a bigger ash heap. But if our good works flow out of a response for his great love for us and his forgiveness, then we will receive a reward. You might say, Nathan, I'm not really too concerned about rewards. That's not really a big to me. I don't need any medals or anything like that. I'm telling you that when you stand in front of Jesus, you will care. You'll care what kind of reward you have to be able to give back to him because you were a faithful servant. Now, will we be spiritually rich or will we be walking in spiritually poor after our works are tested? Now, don't get me wrong, We're all going to be ecstatic to be there. We're all going to be excited to be in heaven. Nobody's going to be bummed out, okay? Um, But what I am saying is that I believe that our capacity to enjoy heaven and all of the things that God has for us to do there will be dependent on what we did with the blessings, with the things that we were given to do here on earth. Okay, we're given two parables in the scriptures where a master came to his servants and he said, Listen, I have to go away. Here's some money. I want you to keep things going while I'm here. I want you to run the place while I'm gone. And when I get back, we'll settle up accounts. And Jesus is the master who went away, okay, and he's waiting. He gave you and I the responsibility to keep this thing going until he comes back. And when the master got back, he rewarded each one according to his faithfulness. But for the one who did nothing, he got the blessing, he got the money, but he didn't do anything with it. He buried it in the ground. That one was punished. He got thrown out. He's got closed out of the kingdom. Jesus is coming back, and we're going to be judged based on what we did with what we had, with what he gave us, the responsibility. The message from Jesus is don't just hear and believe. Anybody can hear and believe. It's about believing and taking action, putting it into practice. Build your life on the right location, and with the right materials, you'll be wise, and you'll be rewarded, and you'll be a kingdom citizen. Now, here in chapter 8, Jesus comes down off the mount. Okay? He's been on the mount. He's been giving his sermon. This sermon probably only took about 30, 45 minutes to give if you read through it. You say, well, Nathan, you could learn something there. <laughs> How do you improve upon the best sermon that was ever preached? Jesus comes down off the mountain, and what does he find? He finds people. People with problems. People that need a touch. See, we love mountaintop experiences, but mountaintop experiences are temporary, okay? Eventually, we have to come back down in the valley and live where everybody else is, where all the mess is, okay? But times on the mountain aren't to be hoarded. They're to be redirected. They're to be fuel for ministry that flows out towards other people. Too often, Christians have spiritual highs, and they just want to kind of marinate in that spiritual high, but it needs to be redirected out in ministry to other people, And that's the example that Jesus gives here. Let's read over our text for this week. Matthew 8. This is um, a much bigger portion of scripture than we're used to going through. uh, But that's okay. You guys can handle it. There's a reason for it. All right. Matthew 8. And when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, "'Lord, if you will, you can make me clean.' And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, "'I will be clean.' And immediately his leprosy was cleansed, and Jesus said to him, "'See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them.' And when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, "'Lord, my servant is, is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly.' And he said to him, "'I will come and heal him.' But the centurion replied, "'Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, "'Go,' and he goes. And to another, "'Come,' and he comes. And to my servant, "'Do this,' and he does it.' And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, "'Truly, I tell you, no one in Israel have I found such faith.'" And I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, and while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law laying sick with fever, and he touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she rose, and she began to serve him. And that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and our diseases. Nathan, why are we going through such a huge portion of scripture? We normally only take a couple at a time. Well, here in chapters eight and nine, Jesus is going to do a series of miracles, and these first three really go together. Okay, so we're tackling these first three together. We'll only be here a couple hours. Up to this point, Jesus has given us, um, I'm sorry, Matthew has given us Jesus' legal qualifications to be king, okay? He has showed us through the genealogy that he was a son of Adam, a son of Abraham, a son of David. Legally, he has the right to rule. And then his prophetic qualifications, he was born of a virgin, he was born in Bethlehem as it was prophesied. He has the prophetic qualifications to be king, his divine qualifications. When he was baptized in the Jordan by his cousin, John the Baptist, the clouds opened. God said, This is my son in whom well pleased. He had divine qualifications. And then religious, I'm sorry, um, he got uh, religious qualifications through his temptation in. The desert with Satan, spiritually he was qualified to be the king, to be Messiah, as he faced off against the devil in the desert. And then his theological qualifications in the Sermon on the Mount, his teaching that he just gave to everybody, clearly proved that he had the authority. He taught as one with authority. And now we get to see, does he have the power to back it up? Does he have the divine qualifications to be the king? through his miracles. Remember, Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. All of this he wrote to prove that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And still, most wouldn't believe. Jesus was telling the religious elite, he said, listen, you don't believe the words that I'm saying. Believe the works that I'm doing. Okay, you can see these plainly. Everybody sees it. Believe on the works that I'm doing if you don't believe my words. But they still didn't believe. Now, these first three miracles all have something in common, and that's physical affliction. There is a physical need that these three people have, and they're coming to Jesus for a touch. And he's telling something um, about the kingdom, two ways, telling us something about the kingdom in these three miracles. Now, of course, healing is a difficult subject. Uh, We read about it all throughout the scriptures. Uh, Jesus healed every person who ever came to him. Every person. Not once did he say, you know what? It's been kind of a long day. Can you come back tomorrow? He healed everybody that came to him. Every kind of disease for every kind of person. He even healed people that never even met him, which is what we're talking about today. A couple things I want you to keep in mind as we look at these healings that Jesus performed. First, he did so by a word or by touch. He did both. With the leper, he touched him and he spoke the word. With the servant, he merely spoke the word. And then with Peter's mother-in-law, he just touched her and the fever left her. He did all three. Jesus healed immediately and completely. There was no delayed or gradual healing. It was immediate and it was complete. He did so without any fanfare. He did so without any gimmicks or formulas. If somebody tries to give you a formula for healing, they're a false teacher. Okay? It's not about formulas. It's about following. It's about following Jesus, listening to the Holy Spirit, following his example. I see churches that are offering healing classes, and I feel that those, I believe firmly that they are in error, because it's not about formulas. It's about following, okay? It's about a relationship with Jesus, being led by the Spirit, and then we speak life into those situations, and then we leave the results up to Jesus. You guys are familiar with the name it and claim it theology, right? You just got to name it and claim it, brother. You just got to blab it and grab it, sister. The problem with that theology is, it's, that's saying, I want my will to be done, not thy will to be done. The name it and claim it theology is what I want, not what God wants, okay? That's a very dangerous place to be. I named this message Ready, Able, and Willing. I know I got the words messed up there, but I'm talking about ready, able, and willing. God is always ready Okay, And we don't have any doubts on whether or not he's able, but the question that we always have, the big question is, are you willing? That's exactly what we hear in this first account with the leper. Now, leprosy in Bible times was a horrible disease. There was no cure for leprosy. If you got leprosy, that was a death sentence. You were a dead man walking at that point if you contracted this disease. It was so horrible, in fact, that there are two whole chapters in the book of Leviticus dedicated to this specific disease. And I don't have time to go into all of it. This can be your homework for this week, okay? Read Leviticus 13 and 14. Super exciting stuff about leprosy and how to deal with it. Um, Leprosy was marked by two distinct characteristics. First was numbness, and the second was isolation. Numbness and isolation. Affecting the nerves, um, this, d- this disease actually starts out below the skin where you can't see it. It's underneath the skin. And then it manifests itself outwardly in the form of whitish scaly spots on the skin. And what was happening is there's a deadening of the nerves. It's literally killing the nerves underneath the skin. So leprosy actually wasn't all that painful because you couldn't feel anything. But what happened, what people died from was the consequences of these deadened nerves and deadened skin. See, those nerves, they're what tells the body, obviously, you know, warning, something's wrong. We have pain here. And when they couldn't feel that, I mean, you wouldn't know if you broke your finger. You wouldn't know if you had your hand on the stove. You wouldn't know if you broke your ankle. And so people didn't die from the disease itself. They died from the consequences of this disease that they had. You could literally wake up, And have had a rat chewing on your nose in the middle of the night. Not know until you woke up and looked at yourself and you were missing a nostril. That's how bad this disease was. So they talk about parts of their body falling off. Well, I mean, it was literally part of the consequences. Because you could not feel what was going on. Imagine that. Second was isolation. This is what it says in Leviticus 13, 45. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip crying out, unclean, unclean. And he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So because this disease was so contagious, they were forced to live away from everyone else in what they call leper colonies. Well, we've heard of leper colonies, right? That's where this came from. They had to live outside the city. And they gave off a terrible odor. Uh, some writers say that you could actually smell them before you could see them. That's how bad they smelled. You'd be familiar with this. In the law, this is interesting. In the law, it said that you have to stay back six feet. Six feet. Stay six feet away. Okay, I don't know. Maybe the scientists were taking their cues from the scriptures, but that's what it said. Six feet away from the lepers. But that's if the wind wasn't blowing. If the wind was blowing, you had to stay back 150 feet. Okay? So next time somebody tells you to stay back six feet, so I don't have leprosy, man. Come on. Just kidding. And then when you... Go into town. It get to imagine this. When somebody, if you had to go into town for any reason, you had to yell at the top of your lungs, unclean, unclean, so people could stay back. And people were so terrified of this disease that they would actually, sometimes they would pick up rocks and throw at these lepers to keep them at a distance. They were so terrified. The closest thing that I can even think of in our day and age, in our age is, you know, probably the age crisis of the 80s and 90s. That would probably be the closest thing to that, but not even really even close to what this was because it was so contractable. Here's the significance of and the reason why the Bible talks about leprosy so much. Leprosy is a graphic illustration of sin. It's a graphic illustration of sin. It starts out underneath the surface where nobody can see in the secret places. But slowly but surely, it starts to deaden your conscience. There's a hardening of the heart. Uh, The Bible tells us it's a calloused heart. You can no longer feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and so people start to justify their behavior. I'm not hurting anyone yes, you are. You're hurting yourself. Starts out under the surface. There's a deadening of the conscience. You can no longer feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And the more sin is allowed to spread, the worse it gets and the greater the consequences get, the greater the stakes. And ultimately, sin becomes all-consuming and it leads to death spiritually, if not physically. Sin is a terrible disease that everybody is born with, and there's no, there's no cure for it except one thing, and that's Jesus. We can see the effects of it all throughout our communities, broken people, fractured relationships, families that are falling apart. It's incurable except for one thing, and that's Jesus. And this leper's only hope was Jesus. The leper knew this. He had heard stories of this man from Galilee who was healing everyone who came to him. And he did not specialize in like people who were lame or opening up deaf ears. He healed every disease from every person who ever came to him. And we often, mi- we often miss the astounding detail that this leper came to Jesus. I mean, they weren't allowed around crowds. They weren't allowed around people. Um, but this guy comes to Jesus. He's like, I have nothing to lose. He's my only hope. I'm going to do everything I can to get new hit, to get next to him. He was desperate. A couple bullet points about this leper. First, he approached Jesus boldly. He had heard that Jesus healed all kinds of diseases. He didn't just specialize in one form. And I think, I think he realized, because Jesus had healed all kinds of diseases, he had seen it all. And he wasn't going to be ashamed to have him approach him. Okay? And because he didn't think... Jesus isn't going to be ashamed of me if I come to him because he's seen it all, so I don't have to be ashamed to come to him. That makes sense. He saw his great need and Jesus' great ability to meet it. And when we finally see our great need for him, and we realize his great ability through what we see him do in the lives of other people, then we can approach him without shame because he's the only one that can take it away. He's the only one that can take our shame away. So we need to approach him boldly. He also requested with humility. It tells us that he knelt down before Jesus. Imagine the contrast. Everywhere Jesus went, there were Pharisees and scribes. Imagine them dressed in all of their regalia, in all of their fine clothing. And then you have this leper, as you saw, in the ragged clothing. It also affected their larynx. So whenever they would yell out, they had raspy voices yelling out. So they stunk. They were dressed poorly, poorly. Right? They they were hoarse when they were talking. People would have been tempted to throw up rocks, shouting at them, saying, Stay away, especially from this teacher. Are you kidding me? Stay away from Jesus, this guy who's healing everybody. It took boldness to approach, but when he got before Jesus, he was humble. He knows Jesus is ready. He knows that he's able. But the big question is, are you willing? This is the question that we all wrestle with. Uh, I don't think any of us doubt his readiness or his ability, but we all wonder, is it part of your plan, God? Are you willing? But we'll never know unless we approach with boldness and ask with humility. In Hebrews 4.16, you've probably heard it. says, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne room of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace in time of need. And it's a wonderful scripture, but sometimes Christians take this verse and they use it as a means of trying to command God to do their bidding. We're supposed to come in boldly. How arrogant is that? To try to boss God around. Now, I'm an imperfect human father. If my kids come to me and try to command me to do something, it's not going to go very well. But they can approach me boldly, anytime, anywhere, they can come to me boldly because I am their father. It took boldly, boldness for the leper to approach Jesus, but once he stood before him, he knelt humbly and made his request. We don't demand healing or command blessing from God because he doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us anything. We are told to approach boldly and ask humbly. If it's part of his plan, you'll be blown away by his mercy and grace. If it's not part of his plan... Hey, his power is made perfect in our weakness. His grace is sufficient for us. That's what he told Paul. Paul prayed three times. God said, You know what? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. That was part of his plan. Do you think Paul lacked boldness? Do you think he lacked humility? No way. So we have to ask with bold, to approach with boldness, ask with humility, and lastly, he also acted in faith. Later on in Hebrews 6, six, we're told that without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that as He a rewarder of those who earnestly seek Him. This leper was earnestly seeking Jesus, and he had earnest faith. He knew that he wasn't obligated, but that he was totally capable. That's the faith that we have, God. We know you don't owe us anything. We know that you're totally capable. You've done so much for me already, saving me from death and the consequences of my sin. I know you're able to heal, and we're asking for this healing in faith. We speak life, and then we leave the results up to God, gang. And we continue in prayer until we hear him say, you know what? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. He had the confidence because he believed Jesus was, com- was compassionate. He had humility because he believed that Jesus was the Messiah, God in the flesh. And he had faith because he believed Jesus had the power to heal him and that he was willing. Then Jesus reaches out his hand and he only says a couple words, which is incredible to me. He just says, I will be clean. That's all he said. Sometimes we feel like we have to pray very long prayers for it to be powerful if we're, you know, we're going to move God on our behalf. It always says a few words. Now, the Jews were supposed to stay back a minimum of six feet, and they certainly weren't supposed to touch lepers. The only thing worse than touching a leper was touching a dead person, okay, because you would be unclean. And at that point, you would be unclean. you have to go through all kinds of ritual and ceremonial cleansing uh, to become clean again. Jesus could have just said, okay, hold up, stay six feet back. I'm going to speak the word, and you'd be clean, okay? He didn't do that. In every other instance of the law, when you touch something that was unclean, that uncleanness transferred over to you. But every time Jesus touched somebody, their uncleanness didn't stick to him. His cleanness, his purity, his holiness transferred over to them in every circumstance. We don't sully God with our sins, okay? We grieve him, but our sin doesn't taint him in any way. It only infects us. But his touch, his forgiveness, his righteousness transfers to you when you put your life, when you put your faith in him and you walk in obedience to his word. Jesus touched him. Imagine years of never being touched. This disease was terrible, but one of the worst parts was the isolation. You were cut off. You were no longer part of community. You were no longer part of family. You receive no love and affection. So Jesus did way more than just heal this guy physically and affirm his faith spiritually. He restored him to community, which is huge. Now, it's interesting because certainly there were people there, right, that were standing there, and Jesus healed him that still didn't want to get any closer than six feet, right? But Jesus had restored him to community. There's an old saying that either this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book, right? It's true. Sin may drive people out of the church, or it may keep people from walking into the church, but once Jesus has put their hand on their life, healed them, saved them, restored them to community when they walk through the building. And when they walk through the doors, we are to embrace them totally. They are now part of the family. And like I said, there were people standing there that saw the whole thing happen and probably still did not want to come anywhere near this leper. I see that happen when people get saved and they get radically saved. And they come into the church and people are like, all right, just, just keep it over there. You know, I know where you came from. You know what? They've been totally saved, totally redeemed, totally restored, and we are to embrace them as their brothers and sisters in Christ. Then Jesus asked this man to do something. We've been talking about, I'm going to keep beating the drum, right? It's not hearing and believing, it's believing and doing. This guy had already heard, he had already believed, but if he hadn't taken action, if he hadn't had the boldness to approach Jesus, he never would have gotten his healing. Now he's healed, and Jesus asked him to put more feet to his faith and go show himself to the priest. Why did he ask himself? Why did he ask this leper to do this? All right, this is part of your homework when you're reading through Leviticus 13 and 14 this week. God gave Moses very specific instructions in Leviticus 14 for the cleansing and the inspection of lepers, and the instructions that he had given Moses had been on the books for about 1,500 years. No Jewish person had ever gotten healed from leprosy. I wonder if the priest had to go back and look it up. What are we supposed to do? Nobody's ever been healed from this before until the Messiah got here and healed the guy from leprosy. So Jesus says, go show yourself to the priests. Okay, this will blow their minds. It will also be a testimony to them, to the Jewish leaders, that the Messiah is here. And then he said, don't tell anybody about it. He didn't obey that one. <laughs> Jesus said, don't tell anybody. But then he went and told everybody. The problem was, Jesus was going into towns. At that point, once word started to spread, he couldn't go into towns anymore. He was going to get mobbed. So he had to stay outside the towns and people started coming out to him. Now what happens to Christians now is we get our spiritual healing. What was the last thing Jesus told his disciples? He said, go and tell everybody. And we get our healing and we keep it to ourselves. Jesus said, just don't tell anybody. He went and told everybody. And he told us, go tell everybody. And then we keep it to ourselves. We need to be more bold in our faith because of what's happened for us. All right. Second miracle. All right. It's only 11 o'clock. Second miracle. First a leper, now a Gentile and not just any Gentile. Okay. A Roman centurion. This is the oppressor. This is the enemy. Surely there's not room in the kingdom for somebody like this. Not a Gentile, not a Roman The centurion, as the name suggests, is a Roman officer. He had a hundred men underneath him. And to reach this rank of centurion, to get this type of responsibility, you had to have proved yourself on the field of battle. It was a sign of being distinguished militarily. So when you think of a soldier who's worked his way up the ranks through acts of valor, okay, we usually think of a rough and tough person, something who's maybe more predisposed towards violence. But what we find here is something completely different. Now, we know from Luke's gospel that this centurion was actually kind of wealthy because he helped the Jewish people build their synagogue in that city. Luke 7, the elders come to Jesus and they say, he is worthy to have you do this thing for him because he loves our nation and he built our synagogue. Something supernatural is at work here because the Jewish elders and this Roman centurion aren't just coexisting, but they're working for each other's benefit. That was not normal. The Jews hated the Romans and the Romans hated them just as much. I think this is interesting because the Bible says, the one who blesses Israel will be blessed. And the one who curses Israel will be cursed. And we are in a very, um, we are a very scary time as a nation because we're not necessarily blessing Israel, but we're not necessarily cursing them either. Things could go either way depending on um, our leadership. And the final straw I guarantee it, will be when our country decides to curse Israel and not be an ally anymore. That might be the last straw for our country because he who blesses Israel will be blessed. God had been working on this centurion's heart and the Jewish leaders were pleading for him to Jesus. That's amazing. Jesus is entering this this town and the centurion and the elders come to him to meet him. And not only that, but this centurion calls him Lord, Master. That did not happen. They did not like each other traditionally, and they certainly would not have uh, conferred upon any Jewish person a level of authority, especially a traveling rabbi. But the word of his miracles get out, and they're spreading so fast that he already heard about what Jesus is doing, and he goes out to meet him, and he calls him Lord. His servant is paralyzed and suffering terribly. We don't know what's wrong with him, but it sounds like he's not going to make it. Obviously, there was very little in the, in the way of you know, medical knowledge or advancement, And people actually died all the time of things that right now are totally preventable, right? The uh, uh, longevity was fairly short for life expectancy of people at that time. But the Greek word that's used here for this servant um, means that it's a young servant. It's either a child or a teenager. It's a young servant. Why does that matter? Well, the average slave owner, especially the Romans, treated their slaves terribly. They treated them like animals, basically. They had no regard for the life or the health of any of their slaves. Uh, There was a story I heard of, uh, I read, sorry, um, of a slave that came in and accidentally spilled a drink on his master. And his master said, take that slave and throw him into the pond on his property that was filled with like flesh-eating eels. Okay? They had no regard for their health or their life. Aristotle said that a slave is a living tool just as a tool is an inanimate slave. He said the only difference between a slave, a beast, and a cart is that the slave could talk. That's how much they regarded slaves. So the fact that this centurion had compassion on the slave set him apart, especially a young slave who wasn't nearly as productive as an adult slave. And I'm going to say this. Do not listen to the progressive Christians today, Christians so-called, that might say that this was some type of inappropriate relationship, okay? That Jesus was saying this was okay, that he had some kind of inappropriate relationship with this slave. Otherwise, you know, why would he be so important? Because they didn't like their slave. So it must have been something wrong. It must have been something, you know, like a homosexual relationship. And Jesus was okay with it because he healed him. Don't listen to that. Not true, not even for a second. Because the Jewish leaders, even though they may have been appreciative that he built the synagogue, would not have stood around and stood for or plead for this centurion if he was living a life like that in sin. So don't believe the progressives when they try to tell you something like this, that it was that type of a relationship. When we started the sermon on the mount, we said Jesus said, "Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth." The centurion is a perfect example of meekness, power under control. Somebody that knows how to wield the sword, right? But he's also stooping down to help other people, and I think that probably struck a chord with Jesus. "Blessed are the meek." The centurion was a meek guy. So Jesus tells him, "I'll come and heal him." Now, if the first healing would have amazed people, this one would have astounded the crowds. Okay, this would have left them dumbfounded. Jesus, you're not going to help a Gentile, are you? You're not going to help him. As God's chosen people, the Pharisees believed that Gentiles were only created for one purpose, and that was to keep the fires of hell hot. They were just fuel for the fire, that's what they believed. There was no way they could be part of the the kingdom. Gentile was synonymous with sinner. They would say Gentiles and sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. They lumped them all in together. Remember that prayer that the Jewish men used to pray? Thank you, Lord, that you did not make me a slave, a woman, or a Gentile. That's a really nice prayer to pray. Jesus said, hey, guess what? I'm going to go heal a woman, a slave, (laughs) Jesus is going against everything that these people had been taught and believed. Now, I would have loved to have been there for this, to see people's reactions, to see the looks on their faces. First, there would have been frustration. Ah, oh, here comes a Roman centurion. I bet he's here to give Jesus a hard time. And then outrage at the request, I would like for you to come heal my servant. <laughs> Fat chance of that happening, Roman. And then just amazement when Jesus said, I'll come and I'll come and I'll heal him. And then their jaws would have hit the floor when they heard him say, I am not worthy to have you come under my house, to come under my roof. That's amazing. This Jewish, the Jewish elder said, this guy is worthy to have you do this for him. He said, I am not worthy, not at all. This compassionate centurion was desperate to save the life of his servant, but there was no room for pride. There was no time for formalities because the time was short. I am here to tell you that right now the time is short. We live in a time that is very brief for our Lord's coming back. We live in a terminally sick world. We have families that are dying spiritually. There's no room for pride. There's no time for religious formalities. We have to be real with people because they have a real need. The centurion had a real need and he had the faith to believe that Jesus was ready, willing, and able to meet that need. Jesus said, I am willing. I'll come and heal him. He was a man under authority. He was commanding a hundred men. If he told his men to jump, they would ask how high. There was no questioning. There was only doing. There was only obedience. And he recognizes that Jesus is the ultimate authority. He wasn't commanding men. He was commanding sickness and death to flee. Anybody can tell men what to do. He's doing things that nobody else had ever seen or heard of before. Surely he is the Messiah. He's the one that you guys have been waiting for. God in the flesh. Said so it makes no difference. You're not commanding men, you're commanding sickness and death to flee. Makes no difference if you're standing here in the street or if you're underneath my roof. In fact, I'm a Gentile. If you come under my roof, that's going to defile you. That's what they believed. Just say the word, Jesus, and it'll be done. It says that Jesus was blown away, amazed. Twice in the scriptures it says he was amazed at people's faith and lack of faith. This is the time when he was amazed at their faith. And another time it says that he was amazed at their lack of faith. And he could do very few miracles there because of their lack of faith. This is one of those two times. This man has more faith than anyone else I've met in this entire country. He gets it. Now, this would have astounded the disciples. It probably would have made a lot of people mad. We're the chosen people, Jesus, and you're saying that nobody else in our entire country has more faith than this guy, than this Gentile? Well, Jesus knew what they was thinking, so he adds this. He says, truly I tell you, many will come from the east and the west, recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Once again, Jesus is blowing up their religious boxes. You're not getting into heaven just because of your heritage, just because of your race. You're not getting into heaven because you keep a certain set of rules. You're not getting into heaven just because you sit on Sundays in church. You and I are going to be very shocked when we get to heaven at some of the people that we see there. That person's here? They made it into heaven? We're going to be really shocked at some of the people we don't see there. In John 10, 16, Jesus telling them that he, has, that he is the good shepherd. And he says this, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Again, this, the kingdom is so much bigger than you think it is. It's so inclusive. People say, you Christians are so exclusive. It's the most inclusive that it can be. Anyone can enter the kingdom. There's just one caveat. You got to take the narrow path. You got to come through Jesus. It's inclusive, but it's also exclusive. Okay, almost done. Last of the three miracles. There's no way to miss this point. Physical health, racial status, social status made any difference to Jesus. He didn't care about any of those things. They weren't an advantage. They weren't a disadvantage as far as the message and the ministry of Jesus was concerned. He healed a leper. He healed a Roman centurion servant. And now he was going to heal a woman and not just any woman, Peter's mother-in-law, which I love. I think it's great. He goes into Peter's house. Now this is interesting because they're in Capernaum, right? Well, in John's gospel, it tells us that Simon Peter is from Bethsaida. So if he's from Bethsaida, but his home is in Capernaum, What's going on? Peterman was a fisherman in Bethsaida. Now, Bethsaida means house of fishing. That's a good place to live if you're a fisherman, right? But now he's six miles away in Capernaum. Jesus had set up his headquarters in Capernaum. That was kind of his base of operations. So what that tells me is Peter moved lock, stock, and barrel. He picked up everything he's had, his his wife, his mother-in-law, whoever else was with him, and moved to be where Jesus was at. When Jesus first called him, he said, Simon, he filled up the boat, right? Jesus filled up the boat with fish and he said, Simon, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. And I think Simon was like, I have no idea what that means, but okay, let's do it. I'm all in. There are a couple important lessons in that. First, you got to leave your old life behind. You have to cut ties with those things that are holding you back from following Jesus. It can be a sin in your life. It can be a friend, a family member, a job, whatever it is that's holding you back or it's keeping you from being someplace that you ought to be. Secondly, you don't have to have all the answers to follow Jesus closely. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. You don't have to be a theologian. You just have to be obedient. Peter could have said, hey, thanks for the miracle. Wow, that was great. I tell you what. Um, I can't do that now. I'm pretty busy. I got this job, and I'm, you know, I'm supporting my family. Um, where did you say you were going again? You're going to Capernaum? Okay, how about if I come up on the weekends, and you can teach me then? But that's not what he did. He went all in. He left everything behind, and now Peter's mother-in-law is in a position where she gets saved. A family member is affected by his obedience. The first time, Jesus spoke the word and touched the leper. The second time, he simply spoke the word, and the servant Was healed. This time he touches her and the fever leaves. Then notice what it says next, that she rose and began to serve him. You've heard me, I'm going to keep banging the drum. It's not about hearing and believing, it's about believing and doing. It's about taking action. Salvation and obedience go hand in hand. Once Jesus becomes the master of your life, once he becomes Lord, your desires, your priorities, all change. Now you want to serve him. To serve him because he saved you. Ministry and service out of a response for who he is and what he's done for you. For those who call themselves Christians but have no desire to serve the Lord, they don't, they, I don't believe that they've grasped exactly what they've been saved from. What Jesus has done for them. I know it's, behind, you know it's beyond our comprehension. But if you don't have an inkling of what you've been saved from, eternal punishment for your own sins... Eternally separated in a real place called hell, your priorities and your desires are going to be upside down until you realize what he's done for you, what you've been saved from. C.S. Lewis said this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. Peter could have taken his miracle and he could have stayed in Bethsaida, but he didn't. His decision to follow Christ brought a family member into position where they got saved. May we have the boldness boldness and the humility of the leper. Seeking the Lord boldly, but also requesting humbly. Approaching the throne room of grace boldly, but asking humbly. May we have the faith of a centurion, acknowledging the authority of who he is, believing in his word. May we have the attitude of a servant, one that serves generously with a desire to do good, that flows out of a response for who he is and what he's done. And lastly, may we follow Jesus' example, not passing judgment on those that other people look down on, but reaching out with hands practically and with our words spiritually. Jesus was ready and able and willing. And if we're ready and willing, God will make us able. Isn't that cool? (laughs) It's an amazing story. I love it. Healing the leper, Healing a Roman Gentile servant and then healing a woman. All of the ones that people look down upon in that culture. Jesus said, I'm here for those people. Not for the ones that think they have it all together religiously, but the ones that know they need a touch from the Savior. And that's what we need as well. Healing's a tough topic. Trust me, I know. I know a lot of you know. We have all prayed for healing. Sometimes it's part of God's plan. Sometimes it's not. We approach boldly. We ask humbly. We speak life, and then we leave the results up to Jesus, okay? He is the one that is in control. He's never lost control just because things feel like they're out of control in our life, just because they look grim. Our only hope is in him. He has done so much for us spiritually and so much for us. He has been so generous to us. We should be so grateful and so generous in return redirecting it, and pouring it out towards others. Heavenly Father, thank you for your generosity. Thank you for everything you've done for us, Lord. We pour it back out to you. God, just like David did when he got the water from the well, and he said, I can't even drink it. This is so precious. How can I drink this? I'm going to pour it out as a worship offering to the Lord. God, may we do that. May we not hoard. May we pour out and redirect. May those times on the mountaintop um, prepare us for ministry. God, may we not hold our miracle to ourselves. but May we go out and tell everybody about it. May we have the faith to approach you and the humility to realize who we're standing in front of, who we're kneeling in front of. God, sometimes we don't even know it. We don't even know when it happens, God. You just do it because you're good. You simply touch us. God, I pray as we go out this week, God, that you would just blow us away with your mercy and your grace, that we would listen to your voice, that we would be led by you, um, that we would lift other people up in prayer, that we would live boldly with expectancy, not commanding you or demanding you, but God, simply saying, We know that you are more than ready. We know that you are more than able. But God, if you're willing, That's what we ask for.